Father, we thank you for this time this morning as we turn to the gospel, as we seek to understand you better, your love and your graciousness to us in giving us the Savior. We're still looking at the, uh, the preliminary chapters, but these chapters are so important for telling us who Jesus is and for the ministry that he would fulfill, uh, not only in his, his time on earth and the cross and his resurrection, but for all eternity. And so we thank you and we ask for your guidance and your mercy upon us as we seek to understand and believe you better. And in Jesus' holy name we pray, amen. Matthew 2 says this, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. <clears throat> when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. We see three different uh, personages in these verses. We see Herod, we see the chief priests and scribes, and we see the wise men, the magi. And so let's get a sense of who they were before we go on. Herod the king was not a Jew. He was an Edomite or an Idumean. He was descended from Esau. He was half Jewish in heritage, but he was fully pagan in his life. His father and grandfather had taken the side of the Jews during the Maccabean Rebellion, which had taken place about 150, 200 years before Jesus was born. Herod became governor of Galilee at the age of 25. He immediately raised taxes and used violence to uh, quell rebellions. He was made king of Judea about 10 years later by uh, Octavius Caesar, who would become Augustus, and by Mark Antony. Um, when Herod was given the throne, he executed dozens of Pharisees, members of the populace who were against him. He executed members of the aristocracy, and he was just as brutal with his own family. Over the years, he had wives put to death, sons put to death, other family members put to death. He was a violent, bloodthirsty, paranoid man. Here's a story that you may not know. Herod died in 4 B.C. of a terrible terrible 
illness. Um, the the e even the, the 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 records of the time are are gory and gruesome. Probably a stomach cancer or a colon cancer, but it had burst out of his skin. He was so afraid in the days before his death that no one would mourn him that he ordered the arrest of one man from each family of Israel, and he had them kept in the arena in Jericho where his palace was. He gave his sister orders that when he died, she was to have those men put to death so that the whole nation mourned. When he died, she released them. Whether that was to talk about Herod's goodness or whether that was out of mercy on her own part, we don't know. But Herod was a violent, paranoid man. Next week, we'll, we're going to look at the verses that deal with the, the death of the children in and around Bethlehem, which is so horrific to us. But for this man, it was nothing. It was nothing. The second group that we see are the chief priests and scribes. We, we might tend to think of the chief priests and scribes as the upper echelon of, of the religious and theological men of Jerusalem. But at this time, it had become largely political. They had obligations to Herod for their own positions and uh, had to show him loyalty. <coughs> they were members of the, the Jewish aristocracy. They often received those positions as rewards for uh, cooperation with the government. And then we see the wise men from the east. About 500 years before Jesus was born, a Greek historian named Herodotus wrote that the Magi were members of a priestly class from the Medo-Persian area. They focused their attention on astrology, dream interpretation, and magic. They were certainly connected to the royal advisors of Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar of Babylon, of Darius the Mede, who... who uh, who conquered the Babylonian Empire, uh, I, I think it's probably very likely that the forerunners of these men had known Daniel. And perhaps they had the book of Jeremiah and even the Old Testament scriptures. And so when the star arose and they saw it and, and the Lord gave them this sign, they had a connection that they could make to their own teachings and traditions. So the, the, the passage opens up with this search for the king on the part of the wise men. They come from the east, they come to Jerusalem, asking, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. The star was not a star, it was not a planet, it was not a comet. The star was a miraculous sign given to these particular men by God. It was like the fish in the book of Jonah. God prepared a great fish. People have tried to figure out if the whale in Jonah, the fish in Jonah was this kind of a whale or this kind of a whale. It says God prepared a fish. God prepared a fish that had room for Jonah to survive for three days or however long he was there uh, all the way back to the shoreline. I believe in the same manner God prepared a sign for these men. It seems from the text that, uh, from the whole text, that when they saw this sign, they came to understand that it meant that a king had been born in Israel. The king of the Jews had been born, but the sign itself vanished. And so they traveled over a thousand miles to Jerusalem to find this king in order to worship him. 
The word worship is used more than 50 times in the New Testament. It overwhelmingly means to worship a deity. Only one time does it mean to show respect for somebody who is a king. These men are not diplomats. They're not representatives of the government. They're not there just to congratulate somebody on the birth of an heir. They're there to worship because God has brought them as Gentiles from a great distance away to worship his son. The promise of salvation going back into the book of Genesis was never meant to exclude Gentiles. It was for all who would believe. The oracles of God were given to Israel, and the Savior of the world was born through Israel. But the promise of salvation was always intended to be for all of mankind. Paul quotes the book of Isaiah in Romans uh, 10, 20. He says, I have been found, God says, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. <coughs> That's the Gentiles. The Gentiles are those who have not sought God. He's not their God. God showed himself to people who were not asking for him to show themselves to him. The Magi were idolaters. They were polytheists. They were like Abraham. God had mercy on them. And they come asking the question, where is the king? And that becomes the question that Herod himself has. Uh, when Herod heard this, he was troubled. All of Jerusalem was troubled with him. There's a reminder here, I think, that the gospel is not always good news. Gospel means good news. The Greek word translated gospel literally means good news, but it's not always received as good news. Herod received this news with anger and resentment, just as many, many people do today. The, uh, Herod was a man in deep need of salvation. He would die probably just a year or so after this in such a horrible way. He needed the grace of God. He needed forgiveness. But he remained jealous. He remained paranoid. He received the news that this baby had been born, it seems, with every possible negative emotion. It seems that there wasn't a negative emotion Herod didn't have. And the wise men couldn't have known it, but... They had just thrown gasoline on a fire that was already raging. All Jerusalem was troubled as well. It, perhaps it was because they had a good thing going and they didn't want some savior cutting into their profits and their lifestyles. I think it's probably more likely that they knew that when Herod responded to this, it was going to be ugly and that there was no telling who would die. So the question on Herod's mind is obvious after hearing this question. Where? Where is this child? Where is this one who's a threat to my throne and a threat to my rule? He calls his own wise men, the chief priests and the scribes. They rightly point him to Bethlehem, quoting Micah chapter 5, verse 2. It's interesting, they don't quote all of Micah 5, 2. They only quote the first two-thirds of it. The last part of Micah 5.2 says that this one who is coming, his coming is from the days of old, from ancient days, clearly identifying the baby to be born as God in human flesh, as an eternal one. And so Herod has this information that he needs, and so he acts to preserve his power, but not his soul. He calls the wise men to him, and he deceives them. 
He summoned the wise men secretly. Verse 7, he ascertained from them when the star had appeared. Now, it's typically thought because of what verse 16 says, that the star had appeared two years before. That was Herod's conclusion, was that, or I'm sorry, that wasn't Herod's conclusion even. Rather, Herod ordered the death of all male children two years and under based on what the wise men told him. I, I think it's probably likely that Herod widened out the age in order to try and make sure that he got them. And maybe they said, we saw the star six months ago or a year ago. And Herod expands that out. And he doesn't tell them why he wants to know. And then he says in verse 8, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. It's a bald-faced lie. He has no intention of worshiping this child. He means death to this child. But if he had said to them, this, this baby boy is a threat to my life, he's a threat to my family, he's a threat to my th- throne, so if you pointed me to him right now, I'd throw him in a sack and drown him in the Jordan River, they never would have said anything. They never would have promised to return. And so Herod, as violent, as paranoid as he was, he was also smooth and persuasive. And it seems like the wise men simply took his word for it. It says after listening to the king, they went on their way. It seems that they they fell for that. For the part of these men, the goal, since they saw this sign in the sky, this star, since the, the Spirit of God gave them the understanding of what it meant, and, and perhaps even at that moment converted them. They've only had one thought in their heads, and that is we need to go and worship this child. We need to go and worship this one. <clears throat> and so that's all that they're really focused on. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose before them uh, or a star, star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's why I think that they had seen the star in the east, and then once they understood what it meant, the star itself had vanished. They made their way to Jerusalem, and then as they leave Jerusalem, they head south toward Bethlehem. It's only four, five, six miles. They see it again, and they know that they're being led. They know that they're being led. And I, I think it's a key that in the, the reappearance of the star, it's clear that Herod didn't direct them to Christ. It's clear that God the Father directed them to Christ. By God's grace, they knew that this child was to be worshipped. So they didn't look in the sky and nod in satisfaction. There's the star. There at last it is. We're good. It says that they rejoiced with exceeding joy. And Matthew piles up the words here. They're laughing with joy. Perhaps they're weeping with joy. They are overwhelmed. And they hurry to Bethlehem. They enter the house. They fall down on their faces. And they worship Jesus. They worship him. You don't fall down on your face in order to say, congratulations, you've had a child. And it's the completion of this journey for these men that began a thousand miles away or more. They've been rescued out of their idolatry. They've been brought face to face with their creator who had become a human being. Israel, long before this, hundreds of years before this, had become unfaithful. 
become idolatrous, worshiping false gods. The Lord had promised to bring salvation to the Gentiles and promised to bring salvation to all who would believe. (coughs) The great irony is that Israel was really the slowest to believe and the last to believe and even now refuses to believe. And what we read here reminds me of what, had, what would happen decades later in the ministry of Paul and Barnabas. On their well, one missionary journey, they, they traveled to southern Turkey, western Turkey, and, and went up into a city called Pisidian Antioch. It was a city called Antioch, and it was in the, the region of Pisidia. They went to the Goss, or went to the synagogue, and they preached. And there was a mildly positive response that first week. When they went back the next Sabbath day, there was an angry crowd shouting them down, telling people that they were destroying the Jewish way of life, insulting them. And Paul and Barnabas said, since you have thrust this aside and don't count yourselves worthy of eternal life, we're washing our hands of you and we're going to the Gentiles and Luke writes, when the Gentiles heard this, this is Acts 13:48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. This is what happens with the Magi. Israel had been unfaithful for centuries. And these men who were, who were like Abraham, who were over in, in the east, who had nothing to do with God, who knew almost nothing about him, who had their own pagan ways, who, who had their own traditions and, and all kinds of things that were in utter rebellion, received the mercy of God. He called them and he drew them. They offered Jesus gifts of gold and frankincense, their rare and expensive gifts that no doubt eased the trip to Egypt and helped this little family survive the, the, the year or two to come before the, the death of Herod. And what we see here is God the Father bringing the wise men into true wisdom. Bringing the wise men out of the kingdom of darkness that they'd occupied and into the kingdom of his son. And then they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod. They would have returned had they not been warned. And they departed to their own country by another way. Let's bring this home. When I think about Herod, I think about the tremendous fear that sinners have of losing their own pride and sense of self-control. Very few go as far as Herod did in actually carrying out bloodthirsty acts, although there are people who do that. But the heart of Herod, that heart of rebellion, that heart of hateful anger toward the gospel is alive and well in billions around the earth today. The act of worshiping a false god is not merely ignoring Jesus Christ. It's actually thrusting him aside. In in Acts 13, when Paul says to the Jews, you have thrusted aside, he doesn't mean that you've just passively turned away. He says you've taken hold of it and you've thrown it as far from yourself as you could. It's the most active way to reject something there is, to thrust it aside. I pray that none of us are in that sort of rebellion today. 
And that if anyone is, that God will show you the grace of his salvation. That rather than thrusting the gospel aside, we would be those who embrace him. That we would be clear with those that we know. Don't thrust it aside. Embrace who Jesus Christ is. Trust him. When I think about the the chief priests and the scribes, I think about the the theological games that people play. The chief priests and scribes had liberalized, is, is what we would say in our time. Whenever people drift from the word of God, I don't know why this is, but whenever people drift from the word of God, they drift in a liberal direction. They don't drift in a more restrictive direction. The Pharisees did that, but the Pharisees didn't drift from the scripture. The Pharisees became so focused on the letter of the law that they missed the spirit of the law. But they were absolutely devoted to the letter. The the chief priests and scribes represent the aristocracy. They represent the Sadducees, the liberal branches of, of Judaism. And just as in our time, when people turn away from the law of God, they turn away from the the word of God, they make man the center instead of making God the center, they, they drift from what is true. And they try and expand out uh, the, the reach of religion to the point where as many possible people can be embraced as, as can be embraced at the expense of the truth, at the expense of genuine salvation. They remake, man and God, or remake God in man's image, and they proclaim a message that appeals to the greatest number of people, the, the message that really follows the path of least resistance. I, I saw a, a statement from a, a, a theologian the other day, and he said, Calvinism, election, can't possibly be true, because if it's true, it hurts people's feelings. But we've, we've come to a point where respected Christian theologians are saying we determine what's true on how we feel about it, not on what God has said. I praise God that the, the doctor that I saw when I was diagnosed with cancer didn't care about my feelings. He cared about saving my life. And he told me the truth in, in blunt, clear terms, not hateful, not violent, not angry, but unmistakable. There was no way for me to mistake what he was saying. When I think of the wise men, when I think of the magi, I think of this wonderful, unpredictable mercy of God. Jesus said in John 3, (coughs) in his conversation with Nicodemus, that we must be born again to see the kingdom of heaven. And he says, those who are born again are born of the spirit. And he says, the spirit is like the wind. You can't see where the wind has come from, and you can't see where it's going. The wind is unpredictable, and it's uncontrollable. The Spirit of God is unpredictable, and he's uncontrollable. You can't hold the Spirit of God in your hands and regulate his behavior. You can't say the Spirit of God will or won't save that person. It's his will. It's his purpose, which is in perfect and happy cooperation with the will of the Father and the will of the Son. And so what we see with the wise men is this wonderful, unpredictable mercy of God. The Spirit of God working in 
happy cooperation with the Father's will opens their eyes, moves them to travel a great distance. He keeps their hearts full of hope. He maintains that hope in spite of Herod's manipulation. And he fulfills their hope at the sight of the baby, of the little boy, whom they rightly worship. When you think about that, what a foolish, silly thing to do. They bowed before a child and worshipped him. It's absurd. It's foolish. It's idiotic. It's comical. Yet Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God, through wisdom it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. My prayer today is that you and I would be those who are not wise, those who are not debaters of the age, those who are not the scribes, but those who believe the foolishness of the message preached, that God sent his son into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief, that he took on human flesh, which we just celebrated a few weeks ago, that he grew to adulthood without ever sinning, that he lived for two and a half or three years of ministry, teaching and proclaiming and healing and exercising all the power that confirmed him as the Son of God, that he died not as, a, as an example, but as a substitute, and he rose from the dead so that those who put their faith in him would be granted his very righteousness. And then he ascended to heaven, where he is even now interceding and praying for those who love him. What a silly thing to believe. But how true it is. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your grace to us and your kindness to us. We ask, Lord, that you would cement this message within our hearts. We live in a world that is constantly battling against the truth of the gospel. Our own friends and loved ones will oppose it. <clears throat> the culture opposes it. Everything around us says be reasonable. Don't be so exclusive. Don't be narrow. <coughs> But everything in your word says there is only one name given under heaven by which men must be saved, the name of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, you yourself said that you are the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by you. We thank you for giving us faith. We thank you for the salvation that you have given us and that you are working out in our lives. And Lord, fill our mouths with the gospel that as we go this week we would share it with those who need to hear it that this year we would take bold clear stands of being your people unapologetically and gently giving an answer to those who ask a reason for the hope that is within us with 
with respect and with honor for those people. We thank you again for this beautiful day. In Jesus' holy name we pray.